This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 66 is something like, well, what's the relationship between matters of fact and matters of logic? We read two essays by Willard Van Orman Quine, On What There Is from 1948, and Two Dogmas of Empiricism from 1951. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental materials at partiallyexaminedlife.com. And if you sign up there to become a PEL citizen, you can access audio versions of both of these articles read by us, the podcasters. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, free of ontological commitments in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin, divorcing from the object of reference and wedding myself to the word in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allen, uh, who didn't prepare a witty ontological thing to say in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, just being himself as he is in Middleton, Wisconsin. Boring. <laughs> And this is Matt Teichman, ensnared in a web of belief in Chicago, Illinois. See, that's a respectable intro. Matt is a podcast veteran. There you go. He is a <laughs> podcast veteran, actually. Very pleased to be back on. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, if you don't remember Matt, he was on our Frege episode a while ago, which is that and the uh, Bertrand Russell on math are probably the ones to prepare for this and the next one if you need to go back and listen to something else, because we are now back in the land of analytic philosophy, people that like logic, empiricists that want to do math. Two things you wouldn't have thought go together. So Matt, Matt is our crutch for that, <laughs> at least this time. Well, I'll do my best. Yes, you wanted it made clear that you are not an expert in this area. You are a graduate student interested. Yes, certainly interested in um, Quine. I've had sort of a love-hate relationship with Quine. I've been kind of cranky about him for a long time. But actually, since rereading him in preparation for this episode, I think I've started to get a sense of where he's coming from. I will try to be charitable in my presentation of stuff. Next time, we have a highly... Uh... It's not actually that technical. It's certainly not any more technical than the Russell on math one that we did, but it's a giant logical constructive system by Carnap, who was Quine's, really his idol. Quine said that Carnap was like the most important philosopher of the 20th century. And the, what we are reading today is a direct reaction. And then Quine responds to him and he responds to Quine and so on. Carnap was about 18 years older than Quine when Quine, uh, so Quine is from Ohio. He was just brilliant, really liked the uh, Principia Mathematica, and got to go to Cambridge, I believe, to work ostensibly under Whitehead, got his PhD in two years, and then just got to meet meet all the greats that were there at the time, including Carnap, who was a student of Frege. And uh, I read where he said he tried to get hold of Wittgenstein while he's over there, but Wittgenstein did not answer his letter. <laughs> so sad. Huh. The Ohio thing is interesting. I um, Is it right that he went to Oberlin for undergrad? Did I remember? He did go to Oberlin. David Lewis was the uh, son of uh, two Oberlin professors. Another interesting Quine-Lewis connection. Lewis was uh, one of Quine's students. and um, But anyway, let's not. we don't want to drive Seth away already. Um. I know that Pat Churchland and Owen Flanagan, who were both on our episodes, were big sort of disciples. They really were in the Quinean mode. Yeah. That is, of trying to make philosophy continuous with science. So Quine did not see philosophy as a foundational discipline to set up science in some way. But it was about 
clarifying what science is doing, clarifying the ontological commitments, like when you make a scientific theory, what kind of objects are you claiming are out there, getting clear on the relationship between science and math, etc. But he was a self-proclaimed naturalist, which we don't get into in these essays that much into what that actually means. I mean, he has all these essays later, like epistemology naturalized that perhaps we could someday look at. But here we kind of have to read into the particular theses he's arguing for here. He considered philosophy a branch of science. He considered it completely continuous based upon the, just the two essays we read. In fact, I was trying to find the quote where he says exactly that. Yeah, so that's certainly where, personally, I feel his influence the most these days is among contemporary naturalists who think that philosophy has no special subject matter, but it's completely continuous with science, as Dylan just said, and there's no methodology that's proper to philosophy, as it's seen from science. There's no facts in the world that are kind of only uncoverable via philosophical methods. Anything that's really gets to count as a fact has to be something that is discoverable via natural scientific methods. His conception of science, though, is pretty broad. It's not just based on hard physics or something, like he considers history a part of science. Yeah, he says science is a continuation of common sense. And also we get some very suggestive statements at the end of the Two Dogmas of Empiricism essay where he calls the positing of physical objects myths and compares them to gods. Homer's gods. Another thing I think is interesting that's maybe missing from contemporary Aquinians is the close link he sees between logic and science. A lot of people who are influenced by Aquine today might, for example, investigate morality by doing empirical psychology, but logic somehow seems never to enter into the equation the way it always does for Aquine. I, mean, I guess the reason for that is that he sees science in its purest, most ideal form as happening in the most austere possible logical language that you can come up with. It's not necessarily the first thing you'd think of when you think of like, oh, what does the biologists do? Well, they do logic. Right. I mean, that could have been sort of just the trend as of the 40s and 50s, but yeah. he certainly kept that throughout his career, and he lived until 2000. Yeah, the collection that these two essays are in, they're the first two essays that I have, is from a logical point of view, nine logical philosophical essays from 1953 originally. So, you know, a lot of that has to do with the Carnap influence, right, from Frege and Russell. In fact, Quine started, like some of these other guys, as a math guy. So it was math and then philosophy of mathematics as sort of his secondary focus. So everything started with that, even though it seems strange from, I don't know, at least what I as a non-mathematician think that mathematicians would be interested in. It seems like it's a fairly natural movement. Well, especially at the time when Quine was around, Quine and Russell and those guys around at a time of upheaval in the foundations of mathematics. Gettle's theorem is the 1930s. Russell's paradox is a little before that. All these attempts by Hilbert and these metamathematical trends trying to found mathematics within mathematics, which ultimately concludes with Gettle's theorem of showing that you can't have a complete and consistent account of arithmetic. So that's all a very philosophical bend of mathematics. Right. So that pretty much struck down the thing that Russell and Whitehead were trying to do in Principia Mathematica, which is what we summed up in our philosophy of mathematics episode. We had read a Russell sort of shortened, dumbed down version of that, where he just shows the foundation of basic arithmetic in logic. That was the starting point for Aquine's thinking that he really liked all the proofs in that book, but he thought that the text surrounding it was kind of sloppy and inelegant. And he wanted the ontology. He thought it was very wasteful. It was very ontologically profligate. There are all these just extra entities all over the place that 
Then in Carnap continued that trend, at least according to Quine's analysis. Whereas Quine, just like if you were doing regular natural science, you don't want to posit extra types of entities if you don't need to. So he certainly was of the bent that if he could only talk about physical things and not talk about irreducibly mental objects, he was definitely in favor of that. This was also the heyday of behaviorism. He even saw John Watson, sort of the big founder of behaviorism, took a course from him and was pals with B.F. Skinner, another big behaviorist at the time. So was very much in favor, as was Carnap, in trying to reduce the complexities of whatever field you're looking at into as sparse a base as possible. Can we talk about that for a second? Sure. Who cares? Who gives a shit how many entities there are, why there's so many or so few? Why is that important? It's a good question. It's one I ask myself a lot. A lot of philosophers, especially metaphysicians, are worried about cluttering the universe with too many different kinds of things. So my own temperament is fairly ontologically promiscuous myself. So my inclination is to say, yeah, whatever, you know, sure. Well, let's look at what Quine says. He explicitly takes this on, right? He uses, in fact, if it isn't the word profligate, he uses something like that in the first essay. I believe the word is promiscuous. Okay. It's not uncommon for philosophers to use metaphors that involve sexual connotations. I just want to point <laughs> that out. Yeah. We want to penetrate, get to the truth. Plato's beard. <laughs> <laughs> Plato's beard. I like that. <laughs> Let me see if I can find that passage, uh, but the Desert Landscapes passage. Page three. Here we go. Quine is referring in On What There Is to the philosopher, we'll call him Wyman. Wyman's overpopulated universe is in many ways unlovely. It offends the aesthetic sense of those of us who have a taste for desert landscapes. But this is not the worst of it. Wyman's slum of possibilities is a breeding ground for disorderly elements. And then he goes on to... Talk about a fat man in a doorway. This is the answer to your question, right? It's aesthetically unpleasing? Well, I think it's partly that, and it leads to confusion from his point of view. There becomes a muddle of whether or not you have two things or one thing, because you have given entity status to this huge array of cases. Maybe you should rewind a little bit and... Yeah. Let's say what this Plato's beard Plato's thing is, beard, because yeah. I, I think, you know... Uh, some of our listeners might read this and wonder why it is that someone thought that the term Pegasus had to refer to anything. It seems kind of absurd to say that you need an entity for Pegasus. So let's say what motivates them. In the very beginning, he presents this question of this old platonic riddle of non-being. Non-being yeah. must in some sense be. Otherwise, what is it that there is not? This tangled doctrine might be nicknamed Plato's beard. And so... He begins with this question of non-being and tries to say it's just a silly problem. So let's say what that means. Non-being must in yeah. some sense be otherwise. You know, I like Quine has a great style, but it's very dense. And I don't think he really fully spells this out for a newbie. So <laughs> you take a sentence like Pegasus has wings or Pegasus doesn't exist. You could take either one of those sentences. And the intuitive idea is that in order for it to have meaning, the term Pegasus has to be about something. It has to refer. That in some sense, meaning depends on reference. Yeah, has to refer. And so that aboutness suggests that there's some entity to which it refers. And so what Quine is going to end up saying is that, in fact, meaning doesn't depend on reference and we can use 
Russell's theory of definite descriptions, which we'll get to in order to show why that is. But I just want to get at this Plato's beard or the platonic riddle of non-being, because otherwise it'll seem kind of crazy that anyone would want to say that there has to be an entity for Pegasus. But the motivation is that otherwise, how do we ground the meaning of a word like Pegasus? So for instance, someone might want to say, well, it refers to something in our imaginations, which of course doesn't work because when we say Pegasus has wings, we don't mean that something in our imagination has wings. We mean the actual Pegasus. Right. We mean the actual, but not actual Pegasus (laughs) at the same time. The possible Pegasus or however you want to put it. I kind of feel like Santa Claus is an intuitive example because there are people, namely people who are under the age of four, who think that Santa Claus does exist. And you might walk up to one of them and say, actually, Santa Claus doesn't exist and thus bursting Mm -hmm. their bubble. So this is often referred to as the problem of negative existentials. What Quine calls Plato's beard. And maybe one sort of intuitive way to set that up is, so I come along and tell you Santa Claus doesn't exist. And then you might say, okay, well, what doesn't exist? Can you point to the thing that doesn't exist? But of course you can't point to it. I mean, if you could point to it, it would exist. So like, what is it that you're saying doesn't exist? And trying to answer that question gets you into sort of a paradox. Yeah, it seems as if non-existence is a property that you would have to attribute paradoxically to some objects yeah, that exactly. object that has to exist in order to have the property of not existing. Yeah, so you have the problem of the being of non-being. Yeah, so one route you might take, which is the route that the philosopher Alexius Minon took, is to say, well, you know, in some sense, there is Pegasus. It's just that he doesn't have the property of existing. He merely subsists instead of existing. You develop this third realm, as it were, of imaginary entities that don't exist but could exist or something. So that's one of the things that Quine is especially critical of and sort of gets this paper going. Is that the same as the possible worlds? If you think that there is Pegasus, only he doesn't exist, maybe one way to spell that out would be to say that there is a possible world somewhere containing Pegasus, only it isn't the actual world. Right. But there might be other ways of spelling that out as well that don't involve possible worlds. Yeah. I mean, I think the the central problem here is that we are having a conversation where we seem to meaningfully refer to Pegasus, but there's no Pegasus in the world that can be a referent, as it were, of that utterance. And so the dilemma here is, how can we actually be speaking meaningfully or be making meaningful statements about something that doesn't exist, right? Yeah. Right. So the solution he gives is the one from Bertrand Russell from his essay on denoting, I believe, which is about analyzing these things away as descriptions. So when you say Santa Claus, you're not actually naming someone, you're describing some chap with a, you know, the beard and the belly and all that. Just because there's a description of that sort doesn't mean that anything actually fits that description. So for instance, when you say Santa Claus is jolly. It's not like for that sentence to be meaningful, there has to be a referent for Santa Claus, but you can reparse that sentence in such a way. I think it would be there exists an X. No, you would well, not yeah, want to. Yeah, yeah, you would. Yeah, there exists an X such that X, if you were making this claim, which would turn out to be false, there exists an X hmm. such that X is Santa Claus or Santa Clausing or however you want to put it, and X is jolly, where Santa Claus is reducible in principle to a whole bunch of different sorts of descriptions, which would ultimately fix him as the entity. Is that right, Matt? Yeah. So, you know, something like there is a jolly man who lives in the North Pole and gives everybody presents every Christmas. There you go. And 
Oh, I said jolly, didn't I? Okay, so, all right. There is a man who lives in the North Pole and gives <laughs> everybody presents every Christmas, and he's jolly, and he's the only man who lives in the North Pole and gives everybody gifts on Christmas, or something like that. The reason that that's a solution is that Quine thinks the only way you commit yourself to the existence of something is by using this there exists an X type phrase. So if you say Santa Claus doesn't exist, you're not committing yourself to anything because you're saying, well, that's not the case. You're putting a negation, as it were, in front of it. You're only committed to the existence of a real Santa Claus if you say Santa Claus is jolly, because then you're saying there exists an X such that X lives in the North Pole, X is jolly, and he's the only one who lives in the North Pole. Well, I think it's even clearer what the sort of ontological commitment or lack thereof is if you talk about it with the universal quantifier, so use a conditional. So for all things in the world, if they meet this description of Santa Claus, blah, 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 then they are jolly. So that can be true. It just is trivially true if there is no such creature. Right, yeah. Say what you mean by trivially true, Mark. The way that the conditional, the if-then statement works in logic that the only time it is false is if the antecedent is true and the consequent is false. So if you say, if it happened to be the case that there was somebody in the world that met all the description of Santa Claus, so in other words, Santa Claus does exist, but yet it did not have the jolliness, then it would be false. Otherwise, it's true. It's a little different than the if-then statement in English, where you always are implying the existence. Seemingly, it would be silly to say all pencils are made of graphite or something like that, if there are no pencils. But as far as logic is concerned, if you say, for all X, if X is a pencil, then it has graphite. That is still true, even if there are no pencils in the world. But we say it's trivially true, because it doesn't actually tell us anything about anything. If there are no pencils. Correct. The way you're using the word trivial, it seems very, very technical right now. Yes. Yes. That is what Quine and Russell and all these guys like to do. They like to take natural language and make it more precise by using this technical vocabulary. The reason I'm balking at the use of trivial in that particular way is because that seems to make the ontological question or even the truth value question about whether pencils exist as being the arbiter of whether or not the statement is true or not. Mark, when you say trivially true... Usually a philosopher will say that to mean something like analytically true or true in virtue of meaning. I think this is a different use of trivial. So every frog yeah. is green. It's true. Even when there are no frogs, the idea there is that, well, okay, usually we say every frog is green when there are frogs. Usually that's sort of the assumption. Doesn't it have to mean something like, by frog, I mean a set of attributes that include green. And when I say every frog is green, that is trivially true because of what a frog means. Right. Okay, and that's exactly the kind of thing that Quine is arguing against, <laughs> right? It's explicitly that kind of thinking about the world that he's saying that distinction, that's the analytic synthetic distinction right there, right? I'm lost. I agree. I'm, I'm getting lost myself. And so, I think that, you know, this first essay in particular, I think even though it's dense, it's such an awesome rendition of the ontological question and what's gathered up in it. Even if he gives some people who end up falling to his pen would protest, he still presents their arguments. So, you sort of have that landscape of ontological possibilities to use it in a different way than he used it. So, I think we could kind of back up a little bit more and give a little bit more of a survey. Can I give one more example of, uh, of saying there is no something and then we'll move on? Because um, I, I think that might yeah. be useful. With, okay. So, 
take the statement, there are no unicorns. That shouldn't pose the problem of negative existentials, assuming that you think it being a unicorn is a property. Let's say that you think that there's a property of being a unicorn. I like that property. It turns out everybody likes that property. There are no unicorns. Okay. So that doesn't raise the problem of negative existentials because one way to explain what that means is you're just saying the property is a unicorn is not instantiated. So there's no weird old thingy that sort of exists and sort of doesn't exist that you're pointing to and you're saying that doesn't exist. You're just saying that there's this property and that property has the feature of having nothing that falls under it. Quine takes Russell to be making that sort of move with things like there's no Pegasus and there's no Santa Claus by making Pegasus into a property or making Santa Claus into a property. If we can somehow make these names of people into properties, then we've gotten around the problem of negative existentials because there's no problem in saying... Like, there are no ghosts. And that's just saying the property ghost is not instantiated. There's nothing that falls under it. And so why shouldn't there be an ontological problem in saying there is this property pegasizing, but it is not instantiated? Didn't you say there is a property? Are you imputing that properties are part of your ontology then? Well, that's his next. Uh... That's a different. So Quine will also be worried about that at some point. You might still have a problem with making Pegasus into a property, the property of pegasizing. Yeah, on page six. We get this transition where he's, you know, he's saying if the importing of such a predicate as pegasizes seems to commit us to recognizing that there is a corresponding attribute, pegasizing in Plato's heaven or in the minds of men, well and good. This stage where we worry about the being or non-being of universals is the next phase of the argument. So first we want to get rid of these subsisting, non-existent, but somehow existent entities. And now we want to move to the phase where we say, well, there are no such thing as we don't need to treat universals themselves as entities. Right. One way to summarize this beginning question about Pegasus and non-being is he calls it a confusion between meaning and naming. And that the way in which you get bound up with wondering about the existence of Pegasus and stuff is that you miss the distinction that there's a huge, as he says, a gulf between meaning and naming even in the case of a singular term, which is genuinely a name of an object. So he gives on page nine an example from Frege. It's at the top. He says, the phrase evening star names a certain large physical object of spherical form, which is hurtling through space through some scores of millions of miles from here. The phrase morning star names the same thing, as was probably first established by some observant Babylonian. But the two phrases cannot be regarded as having the same meaning. Otherwise, that Babylonian could have dispensed with his observation and contented himself with reflecting on the meanings of his words. The meanings, then, being different from one another, must be other than the named object, which is one and the same in both cases. Yeah, and he uses that in the next part, then, arguing against universals as well, that at least is the first move against someone who says, ah, oh, you just said this object pegasizes, or this is red, you know, then you're adding something to your ontology, and he wants to say... Well, no, because adding to your ontology is, again, naming some objects in the ontology, but you can use words that mean something, but they don't name anything. Yeah, in fact, that paragraph is actually pretty good, right? He says, confusion of meaning with naming not only made one think that he could not meaningfully repudiate Pegasus, a continuing confusion of meaning with naming no doubt helped engender his absurd notion that Pegasus is an idea, a mental entity. The structure of his confusion is as follows. He confused the alleged named object Pegasus with the meaning of the word Pegasus, therefore concluding that Pegasus must be in order that the word have meaning. But what sorts of things are meanings? This is a moot point. However, one might quite plausibly explain meanings as ideas in the mind, 
supposing we can make clear sense in turn of the idea of ideas in the mind. That's the direction that he doesn't want to go. He just wants to dispense with the problem of meaning in the end. But this is where he turns to the ontological problem of universals. Right. So we've already seen that the meaning of sentences does not depend in cases where speaking falsely of reference to entities that don't exist. So the first case was a case of references to some specific entity like Pegasus. And now we're getting to a rejection of the idea of meanings as entities. So, you know, you might want to say, well, yes, granted, the, the object Pegasus doesn't exist, but the meaning Pegasus somehow exists. And, we, you know, this is something we saw in Frege. Listeners can listen to our Frege episode for an extensive account of this difference between sense and reference. And certainly, I think in Frege's ontology, these meanings, these senses are entities. But Klein is going to help us do away with those. Right. And you might say there have to be meanings in your ontology because otherwise, how would we understand each other? But he wants to distinguish between meaning as an ontological entity and some particular phrase being meaningful, which actually he prefers the word significant. And he seems to think that we can analyze significance actually in more or less behaviorist terms, right? You can see if a phrase is significant, if you speak it to the speakers and they don't look at you funny. That's all that you need for the difference between a statement's being meaningful and it not being meaningful. It doesn't follow from that that there are any entities called meanings that somehow the sensible, significant sentences or the terms in the sentences are picking out. Would it be right to say that this is where a kind of you know, empirical data comes in, is the way in which you get meaningfulness? Significance is based upon some broadly speaking empirical data. That's the content of behaviorism here? I think it's use, isn't it? Meaning here, it sounds like amounts to use. Well, it's something like a person's disposition to respond in a certain way to stimuli. That's the idea he tries to replace meaning with in Word and Object, which is not something we read for today. But right. certainly that picture is in the background here. It's sort of an overall skepticism about meaning, but not as Mark pointed out, skepticism about the idea that sentences can be meaningful or words can be meaningful. Just skepticism about the idea that there's a separate thing that exists in its own right that makes them meaningful, i.e. the meaning. But of course, you know, there's... I think a lot of work to be done to figuring out exactly what that means, but <laughs> right, yeah. Well, doesn't it at least mean that significance does not turn on ontology? That ontology by itself, whatever that is, does not determine significance. Yeah, we replace instead of saying that meaningfulness or significance depends upon this sort of naming-like relation or this relationship to these existing entities called meanings. We now cash that out in terms of as Matt was saying, the behavioral dispositions, for instance, of a language user. To me, it sounds like, and it's probably not exactly right, but it sounds much like Wittgenstein's talk of meaning as, as use. I wouldn't formulate what you just said, Wes, the way Dylan just said, which is we don't want to have significance based on ontology because those are very tightly connected. That The conclusion of this whole essay is something like, our language has ontological commitments and we need to understand what those commitments are to understand what is being said in the language. Yeah. So in that sense, yes, ontology is all over language. Just backing up and looking at Quine's whole project, right. he sees science as a linguistic enterprise. So the commitments of science, which is, again, going to be on a par with the ontological commitments of philosophy. There's no real distinction between them. The commitment to physical objects is an ontological commitment, right? Yes. Exactly. 
Maybe there's a distinction to be made between whether the significance in terms of it distinguishing one thing from another, which certainly would include the ontological commitments, and the truth of it or the way it lines up with the world, the evidence for it. And so, significance would be the way in which your statements are different from one another, the claims that you've made, and those would have embroiled within them ontological commitments that you've made. But that would be separate from whether atoms actually exist, for instance. Having atoms in your physical theory involves ontological commitments about a whole host of things. And whether or not they, in a sort of everyday word, exist as a different problem and not the problem of significance. So I guess I'm agreeing with you, Mark. <laughs> yeah. And there are sentences that we understand that are going to make ontological commitments that we don't really mean, that we're sort of either being frivolous, right? We're telling a story about Santa Claus, or we are talking about things that a properly scientific language would reduce. But yet we still think we understand each other, right? The fact that I'm talking about meanings and you're talking about meanings and we think we understand each other. Well, that right there... <laughs> Sound, you know, if we're going to say everything that you mentioned that makes the statement significant has an ontological commitment, then there would be linguistic meanings. But since Quine is obviously objecting to that, that's the wrong interpretation. Yeah, example I sometimes like to use from this philosopher, Achille Varzi. There are two ways you might talk about kisses. So you might say, um, in the age we live in, Adam gave Steve a kiss. And when you look at that sentence and you look at the stuff we mentioned in the sentence, namely a kiss, it sounds like, oh, okay, we're committed to the existence of these things, namely kisses. But wait a minute, you could also paraphrase that sentence in a different way. You could say, Adam kissed Steve. And in that sentence, you're just saying that, well, Adam and Steve stood in the kissing relation one to the other, or at least Adam stood in the kissing relation to Steve. Now there's no more thing that you're referring to in that paraphrase. The stuff that we're really ontologically committed to on Quine's picture is the stuff that can't be paraphrased away. The references to things or the mentionings of things that no matter how much we tinker with the way we express our thoughts, uh, we can't, as it were, get rid of in the way we got rid of kisses just now. Yes. In a well-regulated scientific language, we would not have expressions such as giving kisses that imply ontological commitments that we don't really mean. It's okay for convenience for us to use that kind of talk as long as we understand how it is to be analyzed away. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page. Get it by supporting us through Patreon or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support.